Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But as we see throughout the whole of Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel is a general revelation, a general revealing of who people think Jesus is. There's differing answers. The, the spirits immediately know who he is. The evil spirits know he's the Son of God. The Pharisees refuse to see who he is throughout. The disciples are unsure to begin with, and now we have Peter's confession. He is the Messiah. And then we have the Roman centurion at the end that says, surely you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. I mean, Peter, Jesus turns to Peter now and says, but who do you say I am? These, These people, the crowd say this, but who do you, Peter, my closest disciple, who do you say that I am? Peter confesses. You are the Messiah. Brilliant. You've got it, Peter. Finally. You are the chosen one, the Messiah or Christ in Greek. Christos, the promised one, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. The one promised from the Old Testament. The one to come to deliver and to save his people. And then, a few moments later, oh, Peter, what are you playing at? You idiot. What happens? He rebukes the Messiah. He rebukes Jesus. Why? He didn't like what Jesus was saying. He began to teach him the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and, and, and that he must be killed. Three days later, rise again. This is the first of three of these, um, uh, of, of, of Jesus predicting his death in Mark's gospel. Peter's like, I won't let that happen. I don't like, the, I don't like that. I don't like that. That's a bad plan, Jesus. You've got a terrible plan for saving your people. See, what's missing is Jesus isn't the Messiah that was expected. Many of us know this, don't we? The the Jews thought that the the Messiah would come to defeat them from all their enemies, from the Roman Empire that are suppressing them, come on a white horse and defeat everybody and give them freedom. But they overlooked the spiritual role spiritual role of the Messiah to deliver his people from their sin and the kingdom of Satan. He didn't fit their idea of who the Messiah should be. And even today in our society, does he fit the idea of who the Messiah should be? The suffering servant king. Not always what we look for in a leader, is it? Someone that is willing, that someone that is lowers themselves, humbles themselves. It's not what we see big leaders doing, is it? arrogance, all those sort of things we see in many leaders today. Not necessarily the Messiah that other people are looking for either. But Peter rebukes Jesus, brave man. And Jesus, what does he do in response? He rebukes Peter, puts him in his place. He says this in verse 32. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him says, and this is really important, get behind me, Satan. You do not have a mind, you do not have in mind that, um, the concerns of God, but merely the human concerns. Sorry, I'll say that again. In verse 32, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What Peter is doing, Peter is offering Jesus the crown of being king without the cost, without the pain and the suffering that he was going to need to do. And that's why he uses, get behind me, Satan. He's, he's pointing back to um, 
when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. Satan said to Jesus, um, if you, um, you can have instant gratification if you turn this stone into bread. Eat it. You can have all the kingdoms in the world if you just bow down to me. You can have all that you're supposed to have, but you've got to bow down to me. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to take the harder. You don't have to do it. In fact, all you have to do is take the simple road of comfort and have those things. Peter is offering Jesus the crown without uh, to be king without the cost. But I also think that Peter also recognizes in this next bit that Jesus says, he struggles to hear that not only would the Messiah have to suffer, but his followers would have to follow suit. Not an easy teaching, is it? In the new year, welcome to this. Take up your cross, as we'll see in a moment. So as firstly, just simply today, as followers of Jesus, we are to go on the way to suffering with him. That is the call that we have. We are to go on the way to suffering with him in the here and the now. Look at verse 34 with me. He calls the crowd to him along with his disciples. So he's not just, he wants the others to hear this. He wants the disciples to hear this. He wants, he wants the whole crowds to hear this important teaching. And look what he says. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Not should, not might, not could. Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel save it. He wants everyone to hear this teaching. He wants, he wants to be clear. He wants there to be no confusion. If you follow me, it's going to be costly. It is going to be costly. And I have a little bit of sympathy with Peter here because I can see myself in him. I confess that I want the crown of glory that we're promised and awaiting, we'll look at in a moment, but without the cost. Like my fitness goals, I want to be as good as a professional athlete without any of the pain of getting there. But we know from Scripture as well that the crown is only bestowed on those who persevere under their trials. And I think, as I reflect on this this week, I think that this is one of the biggest challenges that we face as Christians. One of the ways that the devil lies to us, should we really be suffering? Do we love Jesus? God, should we really suffer? Jesus has done that for you. Should we have to suffer too for him? Luke's account, Jesus says, take up your cross and daily follow me. Every single day. What does this mean for you and I today? What does it mean for us to take up our cross and follow him? To deny ourselves and take up our cross what does that actually mean for us? What it is not, it is not, I have to go and make myself suffer. It's not what Jesus is saying. This is a willingness to suffer for his sake. I found this really helpful. What does it mean to take up our cross? And John Piper um, says this. He says it's being willing without murmuring or God criticism or cowardice to be opposed, to be shamed, to suffer and to die all for your allegiance to him. Or to go to the heart of the matter, to take up your cross, meant to treasure Jesus more than we treasure human approval, honor, comfort, and life. See, our suffering, he says, is not a tribute to Jesus unless we endure it because we cherish him. 
Taking up our cross means Jesus has become more precious to us than the approval, the honor, the comfort, and life to offer. Taking up our cross is being willing, without cowardice, without criticizing God, to be opposed, just as Jesus was, to be shamed, just as Jesus was on the cross, to suffer, and even to die. How do we take up this cross? How do we do it? Well, the, at, the, at the start of this sentence, what Jesus says is you've got to first deny yourself. Take up your cross. You deny yourself. There is self-denial that happens. That's the only way that we can do this. It is to deny ourselves. That means is to put to death our old self. Old self that loves human approval, loves comfort, loves honor, loves power, loves prestige loves ourselves more than we love Jesus. And so the old self looks at shame, looks at the potential shame, the suffering and the death that Jesus may call us to, says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not willing to do that for you. But the new self, the new self, when we have the spirit in us, the new self that we've been given, professes that the, the suffering Messiah is our king and says, I'm not in charge anymore. He is. He's in charge of my life. I love you. More than human approval, Jesus. I love you more than comfort. I love you more than life itself. So I'm ready to endure any opposition, any shame, any suffering for you. There is more gain in following Jesus, even with suffering for him, than there is in walking away from him. Even with 10,000 earthly benefits. Do we believe that? Do we believe that there is more to gain in following him, even with the sufferings that may come our way as we're opposed for our beliefs, as we're uh, maybe shamed by our beliefs? Um, is, um, do we believe that they are more important than even 10,000 earthly benefits that we may receive? That's the way the new self talks. There is, this is not about having a miserable life. This is about there's more joy in loving Jesus and facing that cost each and every single day than there is in not. Jesus is not saying your lives are not important. In fact, he's saying the opposite. If you want fullness of life, if you want to know what full joy is, it's denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. So, we're to lose our old self-centered self one that desires comfort, and we will save it by turning to Jesus, both in the here and now and into eternity. But this is the stark thing, is that this is not, um, if you want to take up your cross, you can. This is, you must take up your cross. Without doing it, we cannot follow Jesus. We cannot follow Jesus without taking up our cross and following him. A question for you. What of my old self is hindering me from taking up my cross and following Jesus? Is there something of your old self, the comfort, the honor, human approval, power, privilege, anything like that, that is, that is hindering you from taking up your cross daily and following him? What might it be for you? It's worth trying, it's worth thinking about as we go into this new year. 
Let's not go into this new year with the same things that we're bringing from the previous year. What does the Lord want to do in you? What does he want to change? What does he want to, um, for you to peel off, to, t- to shake off? It no doubt will be one or several of those things. I was speaking um, with a believer outside of the, the church um, whose wife used to work as a teaching assistant at a, at a Christian school. And she had to put it with the deputy head was constantly blaspheming. Christ this, or, oh, God, oh, my God. And it was really hurting her every time she'd say it. She'd say it in front of, in assemblies, she'd say it in front of students, she'd say it in front of staff, it didn't matter. And this lady was so hurt in her spirit that went and said, I don't want to do this, but can you please stop blaspheming and taking the Lord's name in vain? His name is precious to me, and it shouldn't be spoken, spoken of in this way. Maybe that's a way in which we can take up our cross is to know that the Lord's name is so precious to us and challenge it in the face of potential opposition. For the school students that are going to school every day and that their so-called friends are maybe making fun of them for believing in Jesus and going to church, they don't deny it. Yes, I love Jesus. The doctors, nurses and teachers who offer to pray for their staff and their patients despite maybe there being some repercussions. For the teacher who in their assembly shares that their faith in Jesus is the most important thing. For those whose neighbours ridicule them or ignore them for your faith, you still send them a Christmas card. You still outreach the olive branch when there's a birthday. You still send a birthday card. You still invite them to Christmas events. You still pray for them. For the wife who's married to an unbelieving husband who has her faith mocked when she goes to church on a Sunday, but still continually faithfully prays for her husband. For many of you sitting here that have left their families over in other countries and have come to take up their cross and follow Jesus by coming over to this country. For the countless martyrs who have given their lives that wouldn't deny Jesus. How could you, in some small way, being being asked by the Lord to take up your cross and follow him for his sake? Is there some opposition? Maybe there's some shame on the way. Is there something... The Lord is asking you to take up your cross and follow him in. Because this is um, probably what really stood out to me the most in this passage in verse 38. It says this, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Basically, unless we take up our cross deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Jesus' second coming, the glory that will be there, there will be shame on those disciples that have not taken up their cross and chosen to follow him in that way. Stark words and hard words to hear, isn't it? We can follow Christ, and when he returns in glory, we will not have followed him in the way that he would want us to have done. The command to take up our cross is a non-negotiable Well, there is good news. There is good news. There's grace that covers it. There's grace that covers it. But we want to follow the Lord closely, don't we? We want to follow him and obey him. We want to live and get to to the end and know that he says, good and faithful servants. But what keeps me going in my pursuit of my fitness goals is the feeling of 13 years ago when I was at my physical peak it's on the way. It's there somewhere. 
But it's because I've had a glimpse of the glory of what it's like to be able to run under an hour for the Sutton Fun Run. There we go. That's it. Because it's kept me going. I can feel like I did 13 years ago. Maybe not. We'll see. But as followers of Jesus, we should look to the future because eternity changes everything now. Eternity changes everything for us now. How we live now, how we sustain ourselves during the hard times when we're opposed for our faith, when we're ashamed for our faith, when all those things happen, we have to look to eternity because it changes everything now. So some questions that I've asked myself, which have been really hard questions to reflect on, are what difference does eternity make to me now? What difference does eternity make to you now? Are you looking forward to eternity? Because how we answer those questions will determine how we live and whether we are willing to take up our cross each day for Jesus and how secure we feel about the future. Because the suffering for Christ now, the pain now, is worth it for the glory that comes later. It is worth it for the glory that comes later. And look what phrase, I love this, what Jesus does. is he, The disciples are mulling over for six days Oh, man, what it means to follow Jesus. Give some time. What it really means to follow me. So take it with Christ and deny me. Then what does he do? Six days later, in uh, chapter 9, verse 1, he gives them a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. Gives them that glimpse to keep them going. They see Jesus transfigured, purified in this bright white state, turned into something more beautiful and more elevated than they've seen before. His glory, and we talk about that a lot, that means his majesty, his beauty is seen for what it truly is, they see that they're going to be sharing in that glory when they get to the end. When Jesus will return, we share in the glorious condition of blessedness into which he's appointed and promised to every true Christian that will enter, um, shall enter after their Savior's return from heaven. Look, Elijah, Moses, people that suffered but saw it through to the end are there with him. They see the suffering servants Transfigured and glorified. That's what awaits the follower of Jesus who is willing to suffer now. We need a glimpse of his glory, don't we? We need to glimpse that glory to keep us going, to know what it's going to be like. It's going to be wonderful in heaven. But um, I had the privilege, myself and Nikki had the privilege of just before Christmas, went over to Bill Cox's house. Many of you may know him, James Cox's dad. I think it was his 94th birthday he was celebrating. And um, between Eben munching on his birthday cake and spilling it all over the floor and us trying to clean it up and Agnes just trying to stroke everybody's hair, um, we got to sing some worship songs. We took the guitar over and we sang some worship songs with him. And to see Bill's face was just amazing. Um, Bill loves the Lord. Um, and he leans back 
put his arms out. And no joke. There's a glow on his face. It was a good party. He's looking for the better party to come. And sadly, not all Christians feel secure like that. How can we be like Bill? How can we get that eternal perspective and be excited about the future, the glory to come? Because sometimes it can feel a little bit abstract, can't it? We have this promise, we have this guarantee, and we know we are to be excited about it. But how can we stimulate that and help ourselves um, really grasp that and that security that comes with it? Well, how we don't do it. Firstly, we don't settle and we don't seize. For many Christians, and I include myself in this, there are disappointments, there are missed opportunities, there are broken dreams that can lead to dissatisfaction. And then we sustain ourselves by settling and seizing for the small pleasures that this life has to offer. Maybe living for the weekend, a TV screen in the evening, a games console, not all bad things, they're good things, but... But sometimes we can forget the greatest future that we are presented with in the Bible. That just goes out of view. So how do we do it? Well, we don't settle and we don't seize. But I think how we do do it is we have a patient restlessness. Patient restlessness, as Paul talks about in Romans 8. He says this, not only, do, um, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit growing inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, there's that eager restlessness of wanting to be there. But, um, but then he goes on to say, for this is the hope that we are saved. The hope that is seen is not hope at all, but who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So there's a restlessness of an eagerness of wanting to be there. That's what Paul calls us to. But, but we are to wait patiently for when that comes bit like a betrothed couple. There's a restlessness in the engagement of wanting to be married. because You know it's, you think, well, it's going to be so much better, but you don't have to travel from one house to the other house at home at night and so forth. But there's also that patient excitement because you know the day is coming. You know that day, that wedding day is coming. And it's worth waiting. Worth waiting for. And so I think we have a posture of a restlessness with the things in this world but with a patience of waiting. I think that's what we see in Bill. Secondly, we grow in our understanding of what eternity will be like. This is where I want us to kind of mainly finish. Growing in our understanding of what eternity will be like. Colossians 3, verse 1 says, You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of what we need to do we need to look above we need to gain an understanding of what eternity will be like what excites you about eternity what excites you about going to heaven 
how would you explain heaven and the joy that awaits for somebody? You're an unbeliever. Why, why are you so happy? What are you looking forward to? What, what's going to happen in heaven? Do you feel confident in being able to explain that? Because we need to excite ourselves that we can excite others about what heaven is going to be like. And so um, I just thought, rather than hear my voice for the last few moments, if I can just pass these out. got number one. If we go in order, it's got a number. Perfect. white robe, thank you, Harry. a white robe, purity, no longer stained by or soiled by our sin. We are made fully perfect. We're in a fully perfect state. We've got number two. how things were meant to be. Oh, is that a new heaven, a new earth, one that's not groaning and eagerly awaiting, one that has received it? A new, a new heaven and a new earth. How exciting is that going to be? Who's got number three, please? So we're going to have raised bodies. Christ will raise our bodies. They'll be transformed by his power. They'll be glorious bodies. They'll be physical. They'll be heavenly bodies. They'll be similar to what we have now, but different. Maybe I'll be able to run a marathon without sweating at all. Looking forward to that. Um, Number six, please.
I know this gets Nikki excited. There's going to be food there. So, uh, and number seven. So I've got two of these. I thought you like food. So I thought we'd get. All races, all people of all nations worshiping together. Like a Coldplay concert, isn't it? But with worship music. So, and Jesus there. <laughs> It'll be better than that. <laughs> well, I think um, well, we will finish with some worship in a moment. If Nikki don't, don't mind coming up, that would be great. But C.S. Lewis says this, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So maybe a New Year's resolution for us, I know for myself, and maybe you would include yourself in this, is to aim at heaven. Let's aim at heaven. And when there's pain and suffering for Christ's sake, let's remember what awaits us, the crown of glory that awaits us. What do you want to know about heaven? Yeah. What do you want to find out? What do you want to study the word and see? What excites you about the future that awaits you? Let's get excited. <laughs> let's be excited. And let's, although there may be troubles and difficulties on the way as we follow Jesus, he is with us each and every step of the way, doing something in us and refining us through the trials. But what a joyful life it is. It's worth it. Let's stand together.